You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. All right, everybody. Let me add my welcome to Weird Church this morning. Uh, it is weird, right? Um, I, I'm glad that it's weird. It's, it's hard to strike a balance between being thankful for the opportunity we have to connect in this way and wishing it was otherwise. Um, it's weird, church. I, I, because my head is camped at the moment in first century northern Greece, I was trying to think, what would Paul think about what we're doing this morning if we said this is how we do church? How, would it, how could he even get his head around this? And uh, at one level it would be completely bizarre, but at another level he kind of, as Ali says, he could empathise with us, the fact that uh, just like Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were in Corinth, two, three hundred miles away from Thessalonica, anxious for the believers back uh, in the church that they planted, being disconnected from them. We kind of feel the same way here today at Red Door. Five of us gathered in this building, um, anxious for how you're getting on, being disconnected from you, trusting that somehow God's words will be resonating with you and... Um, I'm just so grateful for these, these five, uh, well, four brothers and sister uh, who are gathered here making all of this possible. As I was leaving this morning, Judah said to me, um, how come you get to go to church and we don't? And I said, because it's just, just the people that are needed are allowed to go to church today. And, he was, and his response was, I'm needed. Uh, people need me there to make them laugh. And he's right, you know, like he is needed and you are needed. And that's why this is so hard, because we need you. For this church to be church, we need you. And so I guess my encouragement to you is that later in the time where we have a chance to interact, that you would contribute, because we need you. We need your experiences. We need your encouragement. We need your faith, your love, your hope. And so I encourage you to get involved. Now, as you know, this is the second week of 10 in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and last week we were uh, in Acts 16, uh, told us about the, the planning of the church there in Thessalonica. If you haven't heard that, I do encourage you to go and listen to it, because it will just give you the kind of um, the, the foundation for the, the, the rest of this term's teaching. If you don't have time to listen to the 30-something minute sermon, or the 15 10, 15 minute reading of the letter, um, then at least go to the Bible Project and go to their overview of 1 Thessalonians, which is a really helpful resource in just getting the context for this book and, and an overview of it. Uh, if someone wants to put a link to that in the chat, uh, that would be, be a good thing. All right, so we're going to jump right in to 1 Thessalonians. Thank you, Levy, for reading for us. And I want to begin where he begins at verse 1. He says, Paul... Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Paul begins with the location of these believers. This is a really important thing for them to understand. Who they are in Christ is their location. So he begins to the church of the Thessalonians. Now that is that is where they are on a map, but that's not their most important location. They are the church of God, of the, the church of the Thessalonians in 
God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the most important location that Paul addresses at the beginning of this letter. We're at the moment, Renee and the kids and I are looking around for um, uh, houses to buy because we've got a really little house and a really little yard and my kids need lots of room. They're like uh, just kind of bouncing around the, the, the house at the moment and, um, and which is made worse in lockdown as we all know. But just generally speaking, they love space. Renee and I grew up with space and so um, we're kind of looking around the area uh, where there might be a little bit more space for us. And wherever you look um, for houses, when you're kind of reading through the guff of the, whatever the, the real estate agent has put together for that particular house, trying to sell it to you, they always speak of location, right? That's location, location, location. It's like the key thing uh, as far as real estate goes. And it's the key thing as far as Paul is concerned when it comes to these believers, not their location on the map, but their location in God. They are in Christ. They are united to God in Christ because they have put their trust in him. And that's the basis for his address of them as brothers and sisters. And it's the reason why he can say grace to you and peace. Beautiful greeting something that Christians ought to be saying to one another all the time. Even though it sounds a bit oldie-timey, that's a great way for you to greet a brother and sister, a great way for you to sign off in a text, whatever. Grace to you and peace. It's because they are in Christ that they can have grace and peace. And this is in spite of their circumstances. Because you read, as you read through this letter, it becomes very evident that they, these brothers and sisters are suffering. I think he mentions it there, is it in verse 6, right? In spite of severe persecution, you welcome the message, right? So their context is one of persecution, one of suffering, and yet he can still say to them with confidence, objectively, grace and peace. Why? Because in spite of the fact that they're in Thessalonica, they are also in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's keep moving. Verse 2 and 3 says this, We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. Wait, stop there for a sec. This is the kind of pastor you want. This is the kind of pastor you want for your church. Whenever the time comes where God moves me on or I get hit by a bus outside of church, one day uh, or whatever, you know, in a hundred years' time when they're looking for a new pastor for this place, uh, that's the kind of pastor you want. We have seen in our own time, probably more than any other time, the, the tragedy that takes place where, where pastors are selected for their giftedness and where their giftedness outweighs their character. This is the kind of pastor you want, the kind of pastor who gives thanks to God for all of you and who constantly remembers you in his prayers. This is, this is what Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are up to, two, 300 miles further south down in Corinth as they think of their brothers and sisters back in Thessalonica. They are constantly remembering them and constantly praying for them. Later on in this letter, I think it's 
verse, chapter 5, I think it's verse 27, Paul tells the church in Thessalonica to pray without ceasing, to pray constantly. And what he's asking them to do is just exactly what he's doing for them, constantly praying for all of them. And what strikes me here is that he is giving thanks to God for all of them. He's not focusing in on all the things that are wrong in the church, the things that he wishes were different, the things that he's worried about, but no, he begins with thanksgiving for them. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, they love their brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. You're going to see that in this letter. It's very evident that Paul loves them. He talks about sharing not only the gospel with them, but his very self opening his heart to them. He speaks of them as like, he, he, he sees himself as a father to them. He sees himself as a mother to them and mentions both of those kind of images. He's, he mentions in, in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, he, he calls them brothers and sisters 21 times, which is by far the most kind of um, frequent reference to the church's brothers and sisters in all of his letters. He loves this church cares deeply for them. And all of that has come about in the three or four weeks that he knew them. He has this deep, abiding connection to them and love for them. And so, sorry, we'll get back to verse 3. He says, We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the, the great kind of triumvirate of um, Christian characteristics that Paul counts as like the most important thing that a Christian can aspire to and the, the most important kind of virtues that a Christian can have. Faith and love and hope. He mentions these three constantly all throughout his letters. The most famous is probably 1 Corinthians 13 where, you know, where he says these three remain faith and hope and love and the greatest of these is love. For him, these are the kind of fruits that should be manifest in every Christian life. But what I love here is that these things aren't just like esoteric, um, abstract ideas, faith and love and hope, like things that somehow we should aspire to, some, you know, things that you should print on a coffee mug or a, or a bumper sticker. They're not just vague kind of Christian virtues. They're, they're, they're things that are rooted in, established in daily Christian living. So he says, you're, and this is where the emphasis actually is in the, in the original language, the emphasis is on the word that comes before that great virtue. So it's, it's on work, which is produced by faith. It's on labor motivated by love and endurance inspired by hope. So I want to look at the, each of these three uh, and see, see how these th three things are not just evidences of God's grace in our life, but that they should be um, flourishing in the life of each of us as believers. Okay, so first of all, work, motivated, uh, work produced by faith. This just 
should instantly erase any kind of false dichotomy we have or have received as good Protestants that somehow faith and works are at odds with one another. Paul is very keen throughout his letters to, to let us know that, that faith isn't earned by works, but at no point does he say that faith is divorced from works. In fact, here, the faith that he is commending them for, the work that he's commending them for, is, is, is produced by faith. In the midst of their context, where, where the, they are under threat for their faith in the Lord Jesus, where it's hard to be a Christian. By the way, all these three things become much more pronounced wherever Christians are being persecuted. They become much more important. They become much more manifest in those situations. And here, these things are clear because they are motivated by, given life by, faith. And not just the faith of the individual. This faith that Paul's talking about is, is trust in the faithfulness of God. The work that they're producing, that they're doing, which is being produced by faith, it's not kind of contingent on the individual faith of this or that person, but rather it finds its energy, it finds its impetus in the faithfulness of God himself. That's how they can keep working. That's how they can keep ministering, how they can keep sharing the gospel in the midst of this very difficult situation they find themselves in. It's because all of the impetus for, us come, for it comes not from the faith of the believer, but from the faithfulness of God himself. Because God is faithful, therefore we can work. I remember, it just came to mind now, I remember hearing from a guy, a minister of a church who had a, who had a huge um, uh, tumour huge brain tumour, and was having treatment for it, and surgery and chemo and all that stuff, and it was just touch and go whether this thing would kill him or not. And I remember him saying very clearly, uh, we're praying that God will heal me. He'll either heal me or he won't. In either case, we trust him, and in the meantime, we'll get to work. In the meantime, we'll get to work and that work will be motivated by a trust in God's faithfulness irrespective of whether we're healed or not, irrespective of whether we're thrown in jail or not in the case of the Thessalonians. Whatever happens, we trust in the faithfulness of God and that gives birth to work, the work of the gospel. So there's work produced by faith, and there's labor motivated by love. Now, we are kind of familiar in our own language in, in, in the English world. We're familiar with the idea of a, a labor of love. It's normally, it's normally the guy who's got a, an, like a really old car, and he's pumping money in and time into that car, and he's never going to see any return for his money or his time, and so we refer to that as a labor of love. 
Right, the time and the money sunk into this bottomless money-wasting project is a labor of love. We're not going to see any res- reward from it. That's, that's kind of how we conceive of a labor of love. It's, it's something you do because, for the love of it, not because of any reward that you'll receive. That's not actually what Paul's talking about here. This labor of love, this, this labor motivated by love is not this rewardless task that we do just because. Jesus was really clear about this. Jesus called us as his disciples to labor and labor and labor in love, but he was also very clear that the rewards for those who labor in his kingdom are infinite and eternal. This is not just a labor that we give ourselves to do in spite of ourselves and with no hope of reward. Our labor of love, our labor motivated by love, is one that will receive its reward. That itself motivates us to continue to love and to labor and to love. So we have this work produced by faith, this labor motivated by love and endurance inspired by hope, hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember, these Christians that he's writing to are suffering severe persecution. And wherever you find Christians through the last 2,000 years and around the globe today, whenever, wherever you find Christians who in the midst of persecution and suffering are enduring, persevering in faith, you will find Christians who are very closely connected to hope. And not hope that one day they will be relieved of their suffering, not hope, some kind of vague hope that things will turn out for the best, but a sure and certain hope in the second coming of Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about here. Remember, that's the big theme of the letter. The big idea is that Jesus is coming. Jesus is standing at the door. Jesus is coming to recreate and renew all things. Jesus is coming to put things right. That is the hope that enables someone to persevere through torture and not to renounce the name of Jesus. That's the hope that he's speaking of here. In the midst of suffering and persecution, we have hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the second coming, in the renewal of all things. Now, I don't think any of us are in a situation anything like these Christians in Thessalonica. These sermons go out online, so maybe somewhere someone is listening to this who is suffering severe persecution on account of their faith. But irrespective of our circumstances, all of us do face difficult times. We are right now unless you're a very peculiar kind of person who enjoys these lockdown periods, uh, then, you know, this is suffering. This is a situation that requires perseverance if we're not going to be led to despair. And the seat, the ground, 
the energy for that perseverance is not some vague hope for the future. You know, like the new Premier League season starts in a month. I hope Liverpool will win the Premier League this season. But it is a vague, uncertain hope. Not so this hope. This hope, as the Anglican prayer book puts it, is in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. The sure and certain hope of the second coming of our Lord Jesus. So these are the marks of true belief in Jesus. This is why Paul is encouraged, even though he's disconnected. Why he's got, the reason he's got confidence in the church in Thessalonica, the reason that he has confidence and assurance in the reality of their faith is that they are displaying, as Timothy has reported to him, you read about that in, in chapter 3, Timothy has reported to him that these marks of true faith are evident in the church in Thessalonica. This is what John Stott says about these three things being marks of true faith. He says, every Christian without exception is a believer, a lover, and a hoper. Faith, hope, and love are thus sure evidences of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Together, they completely reorientate our lives as we find ourselves being drawn up towards God in faith out towards others in love and on towards the parousia in hope. Parousia is just the Greek word for second coming, right? So these things enable us to reorientate our lives and give evidence for the fact that we have been saved by God, that we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit true marks of Christian faith. John, uh, John Stott said it that way. John Calvin put it much more succinctly when he said, faith, love, and hope is a brief definition of true Christianity. You want a brief def- definition of what a real Christian is, what it really means to be a follower of Jesus? Faith, love, Work produced by faith, labour motivated by love, endurance inspired by hope. Now, that's the fruit of true faith and full assurance. That's the fruit that should be manifest in our own church here in Caroline Springs. More and more and more. We want to see evidences of faith and love and hope. Now, he he switches now to the root of What is the root of that fruit? The root that produces that fruit. Verse 4 to 5a, he says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. So, the fruit of faith and love and hope and power of the Holy Spirit and assurance find their root in God's electing love, in God's choosing of us in love. We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. It's good to remember every now and then that it is 
bonkers that you are a Christian. That it makes no sense that you are a Christian. You might hear that and say, well, actually, you know, if you look at the pattern of my life, I was raised in a Christian home and I went to a really good uh, Sunday school when I was young and then, you know, we, I've been taught the Bible in good churches and so actually it quite, makes quite good. No, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. Yes, those are means, absolutely vital means that God has used to bring you to faith in Jesus, but it is crazy that any one of us belongs to him that any one of us would put our trust in him is crazy. It's crazy that you're a Christian. And in fact, if you look deeply into this, the only reason that any of us can give for the fact that we trust Jesus, the only reason that we can give is the reason that Paul just gave. The fact that we've been chosen by him in love. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. I like this summary. He says, I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. <laughs> and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. It's crazy that any one of us is a Christian. And if it's true for us, if, that's, if it's crazy that any one of us is a Christian, when, when we've grown up in this Western civilization which has at its bedrock from start to finish Christian faith and belief, we live in societies that have been built on the foundation of Christendom and Christian values. A lot of us have grown up going to good churches, Sunday schools, parents who prayed for us. If that's true of us, then how much more is it crazy that these first century northern Grecans could have turned to Jesus? turned away from the, the, the society that they grew up in that was saturated with paganism a multiplicity of gods that would just form the very foundation and fabric of everything they did, to turn away from that and to trust in Jesus is crazy, apart from God's choosing of them, apart from God's electing love. If you read through the book of Acts, it's clear that the message that Paul was preaching just sounded like nonsense to these pagan people. You get a hint of this in, in Athens, in Acts 17, verse 18. It says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, so the, the, the dominant philosophies of Greece at the time, also debated with him, with Paul. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They had no idea what he was talking about. It was nonsense. People thought he was crazy, and yet these brothers and sisters in Thessalonica are trusting day by day in the risen, reigning, and returning Lord Jesus. And all of it is a sheer act of grace, sovereign act of grace. 
God's choice of them did something incredible to them. He mentions this in verse 9 to 10. He says, For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven who raised who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That turning away from idols, to embrace the Lord Jesus as their Messiah, was a crazy, crazy, impossible, miraculous act of grace at God's initiative. I think Tom Wright captures it well as a historian and someone who deeply understands the pagan culture of first century Greece. This is what he says. He says, Paul must have known as he went from place to place that most people who heard what he was talking about were bound to think him mad. And yet these people had not. He goes on. Some in Thessalonica found something happen to them when they listened to his message. A strange power gripped them. The power that Paul would tell them was the Holy Spirit at work. They would suddenly understand what he was saying. It would grasp their hearts and minds. They had not come to faith by accident. God had taken the initiative in grasping them with the gospel. And so because all of that is true and that's how every single one of us has come to faith at the initiation of God in his electing love, because of that, that's why in verse 2 he says, we always thank God for all of you. You thank the giver and the giver of every single gift of faith is God himself. We've gone down plenty of rabbit trails in the past when it comes to this doctrine of God's electing love and his choosing of us, and we've, we've spent hours and hours going down those trails. I don't want to do that. I don't want us to do that. I just want us to do what Paul does. I want us to see this beautiful truth, to recognize it for what it is, a supreme act of love, and then to respond with thanksgiving and praise. You know you understand election when your response is not argument, but praise. But it doesn't end there. And I don't want us to end there. Because true love and and faith and, and hope and assurance, these things don't end with us just praising God for them. That's not where it ends. It doesn't just end with us thanking God that he's been good to us for saving us from the coming wrath. A church that has comprehended these beautiful truths doesn't just thank God for them. It then moves. It moves out. It sends out this beautiful message of grace and love. It rings out in the world 
around the church. You know, we have in our little backyard, we have, despite its small size, we have a bunch of fruit trees. We've got, let me just see, we've got two, yep, two apple trees, we've got a pear tree there, and then there's a lemon tree and an orange tree, and then this enormous peach tree, and then a nectarine tree, which is our Narnia nectarine tree, where, you know, India finished a nectarine when she was a little kid, and she planted the, the stone, and then it grew up into this tree, and, uh, and it was like magic. Apparently, that's how all fruit trees grow, but this was particularly magical. Anyway, we've got lots of fruit trees, is what I'm trying to say, and if you go out to our backyard right now, all of those fruit trees are stripped of their leaves. They, they look completely dead, and on the, the apple trees, you'll notice there's like three or four apples still hanging onto the tree. The tree's kind of gripping onto them for dear life. And they kind of look like normal apples until you get up close to them and you notice that they've been eaten through by beetles and they're all soft and squishy and they smell like apple cider. Apple cider vinegar is what they smell like. And so it is with the church who receives the, the fruit of the grace of God and then hangs on to it, hangs on to it for itself. That fruit eventually rots. It starts to stink like vinegar. But if you had to rewind the tape a little back into autumn, you would have seen these trees just heaving with fruit and you would have seen my wife Renee going around with baskets collecting the fruit and, and then you would have seen her go around to the neighbours giving away the fruit and down to the school and giving it out to the teachers and school mums. Maybe even if you part of this church you might have got a little bit of that fruit yourself because that's the purpose of it. The yielding of this fruit, the purpose of it is to be shared with others lest it rot and become worthless. So it is with these great gifts of grace to us. They don't just result in praise. They're given to be shared so that they might be received with thanksgiving and tasted and enjoyed. So that's the challenge for us. It was the challenge for the Thessalonians, the challenge to have the gospel ring out around them in the midst of persecution. It's the challenge for us today to do the same. Let's be encouraged by their example. This is the last couple of verses I'll read from verse 6. It says, You yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. They became an example for those around them and they are an example to us today. Let me pray for us that this would be true for us. Father, we thank you for your word, the opportunity to open it once again. And we thank you for the example of these Macedonian Christians 
We thank you that in spite of their persecution, the word of God rang out where they were. I pray, Lord, that you would save us from being that kind of church that receives your gifts gratefully, praises you for them, and then hangs on to them until they rot. May we rather be like these brothers and sisters who, in spite of persecution, praised you for your grace, manifested faith and love and hope, and then spread it around that others would receive and believe your gospel of grace. May it be so for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.